How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 114. Uh, what, what did I just say two seconds ago? There was a weak you, you clap? You can't have a weak loud? clap. A weak clap. We can't do weak claps when syncing our yeah. audio, Zeke. For some reason, that made you laugh. <laughs> yeah, because I'm really inappropriate. That's why <laughs> okay. it made me laugh. <laughs> okay. How are you doing, Jake? I'm good. I've been you know busy, stressed, but... You know, doing my thing. I'm guessing you, you're in a similar boat. Yeah. Just on a weekly basis. It's a constant state nowadays. <laughs> no, it's hot today. It's 30, 36 or 37. It's, it's officially disgusting. Mm. Like, uh, yeah, we're melting. We're melting yeah, here. It's not great. I was. No, I, I actually, and I forgot, I um, didn't realize until we almost rocked up at your house, I was going to bring like a beer for this podcast because oh, it's right. just, it's the perfect weather for it. It's mm. the only time that... Um, do it but um, yeah speaking <laughs> but you of, just didn't <laughs> I just didn't do it um, fair bridging, enough bridging back to the cinema in Cinema Sideshow podcast oh. Jake are you no ready for your side. quote the side show. yes my 2014 quote I'm two for one right now so mm-hmm. I've been really struggling this season I think I think the fact that these films are more recent has actually been we thought it would be easier I think it's actually been mm-hmm. way harder for me Okay. Maybe I'm just bad at it. I don't well, know. <laughs> this will be intriguing to see uh, if okay. you can pick this one up. All right. You have, like I've said prior to the show, you have seen this film, but you have not given it a rating, which means you might not have seen it recently. Right. I might have haven't. Yeah, you're right. In, a, in at least a few years. Yeah. So no worries. I'll see. The best and clearest way that I can phrase it to you, Lou, to capture the spirit of what we air, is think our, bru- our newscast as a screaming woman running down the street with her throat cut. I'm Jesus, good. I'm just. I'm trying to remember who Lou is because that's a very familiar name. Okay, it's not Whiplash. I thought you were going to go for Whiplash, but I think I've given Whiplash a rating. So I don't think okay. I also remember I'll, Lou. I'll refrain. I'll do um, it one more time for oh, you. Oh, oh, oh! Is it Nightcrawler? It is indeed Nightcrawler. Yes! I knew it. I knew I knew Lou um, from somewhere or Lou. Yes, so it is. Speaking uh, of Riz Ahmed, <laughs> that's why I picked it. Um, obviously tying oh. into Sound of Metal and Oscar, yeah. no, is he nominated? Yes, he is. Oscar nominated yes, actor Riz Ahmed. That's a good point. I should have that tab open for later. Supporting cast for that one. So Yeah, um, now he's a lead. He's a lead man now. Yeah, which is so good. I thought that was a good tie-in. Um, yeah, Very congratulations, good. Jake. Three out of four Thank so far. you. I thought it was either going to be Whiplash or Boyhood. Right. But I don't know... What quotes are from Boy? It's pro- it's probably all like kind of know, generic something coming Ethan, of something age. Ethan Hawke exactly. Says. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not something the sister says. Um, yeah, cool. Well, I'm glad I got that one. And uh, sweet Zeke, what have you been watching in the past week in the cinema? Um, yeah. So apart from the film of the week, I've only caught one film. Um, I actually went and saw on Thursday the uh, Italian documentary, The Truffle Hunters. Right, um, that's right. You were texting me about that. I was, yeah. So, is, is that a reference to the truffle shuffle from Goonies? <laughs> I very much doubt that. Um, you didn't get Goonies vibes from this documentary. I've never seen the Goonies. We've talked about this. Right. Yeah. Um, right. So this uh, this is a documentary directed by Michael Dweck and Gregory Kershaw. Dweck. Um, and it, I'm just going to read you the logline because it's a pretty good logline. Uh, in okay. the secret forests of northern Italy, a dwindling group of joyful old men and their faithful dogs search for the world's most expensive ingredient, the white alba truffle. 
they're stories uh, from real-life uh, fairy tale that celebrates human passion in a fragile land that seems to have been forgotten in time. Yeah, Truffle's a pig, right? Truffle is like a spice. Oh, um, right, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, okay. um, sometimes pigs are used to find them, though. Gotcha, um, gotcha. So it's kind of like a, a rooted plant. It kind of looks, a, the closest thing it kind of looks to is like ginger. Right. Or like garlic and stuff like that. Um, and it's got like, I've obviously, personally, I've never had it. Mm. Um, and it's sort of, this documentary explores the economy of, of truffle hunting, how obviously there are, there's the middlemen profiting off the, the very much, the, you would consider these, um, you would consider these, these older men that go around searching and finding them as the mm. farmers of the truffles. And right. obviously it goes all the way through the industry, all the way up to the sort of the high class bidding for these, these incredibly rare uh, ingredients that have this sensational taste. Um, I found it very interesting. I went okay. and saw this film. Um, there was actually four other people in the cinema. Um, and, a lot of people interested in, in the truffle. Yeah, um, and two of them left halfway through. Oh my God. <laughs> they left because I don't think they realised that it's an Italian documentary and I don't think they realised oh, that they subtitles? completely in Italian. Um, oh, okay. So... I don't think I've ever seen that. For like, like a, I mean, we joked that like during Rocket Man, for example, we saw someone leave oh, halfway yeah. through when it's like, oh, he's probably just homophobic based on the the scene when he left and never came back. And uh, like, but I I've was, never seen people walk out in a subtitled film. There were f- there was five of us, and I was easily by far the youngest. Um, yeah, there was two <laughs> middle aged women, and then an elderly couple. The elderly couple stuck through it and actually were that really nice sense. to talk to. I talked to them oh, nice. at the start and after the film. Um, but the other two were very clearly two mums that were just seeing a film and they got halfway through and they went, are you understanding any of this? <laughs> very loudly. And then they got really? up and left. Yeah, wow, like, they literally could... said that out loud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Do you get this shit? I just I laughed. After they left. So I was there to see that. <laughs> they just got up and left. Um, uh, that's my I w- little teaser. I'll let this particular person tell this story better next week on the show. But it reminds me of a story I was told from someone about their screening of Swiss Army Man and how apparently there was an older couple watching it and every five minutes when there's like a fart joke or a poop joke, they would say, God, oh, disgraceful, disgusting, <laughs> this left. <laughs> I yeah, killed to see that reaction. Um, yeah. It was pretty legit, and they were all. The funny thing was, both of them were quite vocal. Like, okay. like both couples oh, were no. like very vocal about the, what they were. And their commentary was almost <laughs> as entertaining. <laughs> I'm just sitting there. And so I'm, you're like in the middle of these two. Couples. Yeah, I'm like in the top right. <laughs> And then the the two women are in the row in front of me, and then the couple next to me were in the the, the top left. So I could very clearly hear both the conversations (laughs) that were happening, (laughs) because it wasn't a big cinema. And it just was really funny, because it was like, I was enjoying it. I I liked it. Yeah. It's 80 minutes, (laughs) so it didn't overstay its welcome. Okay. Um... Some of the editing structuring or even just the documentary structure itself, whether you would call that the editing's fault, I wouldn't. I would actually say the way they structured the documentary 
was a little confusing to me. Okay. Um, they put scenes that I thought were going to be the final... I feel like we hit the final scene three or four times, and I felt uh, like right. the final scene actually was the scene that was with about 15 minutes left. So we basically follow, from the start, we follow this journey of of um, how these men find the, the truffles, and we explore the, the sons that have inherited the, the business side who transfer taking it off the farmers and then putting it into sort of the fine dining industry and how much how much money differential there is like right. he'll pay for the truffles he'll pay like you know 4 500 dollars or euros for it but then sell it to the dining experiences for 4 45 5000 dollars right or 5000 euros and then uh, or if it goes to like fine auctions, they're selling upwards of twenty or thirty thousand. So it's like the the the, the inflation rate yeah, between. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of like we we can break that down even with just basic farming. How much a farmer gets paid for a potato, and then how much a potato gets sold in a in a coals yeah. for. Um, this astronomical um, inflation. Well, it's sort of basic economics. Yep. Like it sort of goes but through that. Yeah. And it's like these men; they have such. Um, intimate relationships with their with their animals their dogs because right. these dogs find it and um most of the ones that we follow most of the these elderly men we follow they don't have women in their lives or wives or anything like that they very much yeah. just have their dogs and them there is one that has a wife who he's 88 years old and she's saying you can't keep going out in the middle of the night looking for mm-hmm. these and he eventually, the final scene is him sneaking out with his dog okay. to go look for it. He's <laughs> like, still basically going. like a stuff you. Yeah. Um, but I feel like the final scene was that they also follow for a short period of time this man that evaluates whether these truffles are actually worth worth a dime and stuff. So it's like, mm. and one of his first scenes is he's at a doctor getting his nose, his nostril checked because the whole sensation of sniffing these is such an important right. element of it and here's a scene where he finally we finally see a truffle being used with food and he's eating it and it's just and then they've got like the big orchestral flourish and it's like all you're <laughs> waiting for is the cut to black and then the film goes for another 20 minutes <laughs> right okay i see what you mean yeah i it's funny i noted two documentaries i actually watched these two separately with the same person mm. we both went to cinemas to see this reminds me of the man who stole banksy and how that film has, like, four different ending points where mm. you're right. It's like, oh, that's a great ending. Oh, it's still going on. Oh, that's a great, great ending. ending. Oh, it's still, yeah, still going on. Kind of ridiculous. And then it also reminds me of Booksellers where it's not... I don't think it's the editor's fault because, obviously, it's probably a director who decided to do it. But they sort of... All of these interviewees that they're meeting around the world to talk about, like, collecting and archiving books, at the end of the film, they have them all in a round table talking to each other. I'm like, wouldn't that have been way smarter to have that conversation play throughout the documentary? Yeah. Just just shove it at the end? And so, mm. well, that was weird. So it kind of reminds me of those two in terms of weird attitudes. Well, that's the, and that's what I found interesting because they actually did apply what you're saying in Truffle Hunters. Okay. They kept cutting in and out of the the auction leading into the... and where it cultivates with the man finally eating it. Right. And they cut back and forth between like farming and the middleman, and it's very much like structured like that. So when you get to the end when the man's eating it, you're like, "This is the ending," but then it doesn't yeah. end for another fifteen twenty minutes. So you're like, 
hang on, so you've done this through line, you've created this through line, you've resolved the through line, but then you choose to keep going. It's still an ending, yeah. And you, there, there's a couple of wrap-up stories, which honestly, they should have just put ahead. Uh, like, they, they need to be there, but I feel like what we're trying to do is we're trying to emphasize the the importance of this in, in an Italian cultural sense mm. or a high-class sense. And I think we all, you know, we see how many people that this this thing that's you know found in the ground it dictates so many people's lives so we kind of want to see at the end where exactly are these truffles used yeah so when we get the answer to that question the other 15 20 minutes it's like we've already answered the question exactly no it's Um, fair but it sounds like you liked it enough yeah yeah yeah, I, i wasn't um as on board as something like my octopus teacher so okay um, which I saw you caught in the last week. Ah, uh, you're a master of segues, Mr. Yeah. Morgan Hine. I did watch my Octopus Teacher finally this week. Um, I know it seems like, oh, you just did it because it got Best Director nomination. It's like, I just finally had time to watch it. I, mm. I was going to watch it anyway. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is that time of year, though. I mean, I feel like when yeah. we, weekly when we do like the what's going up for the awards, what we're also doing is prompting ourselves to, oh, maybe I should check that out. I mean... Yeah, exactly. You know, two weeks ago, we hadn't seen... Um, either the film of the week or um, Judas and the Black Messiah and mm. both of them we thought were the two people that were probably leading the supporting acting category right so yeah. I feel like the, that's the prompt that we need sometimes no well it, <clears throat> excuse me it's good and um, it's going to be cool because I think when we get into our Oscar discussion in a moment um, it's cool it's going to be cool to highlight just how many of the films we've not only seen but already reviewed that mm. are in these top categories so I think in terms of our show and covering these films especially in the main the film of the week i think we'll be doing a really excellent job mm-hmm. in the last year but um yeah so with that i did watch mark to teacher i liked it a lot i thought it was excellent I, it may be a little overhyped maybe Whoa. i mean i don't want to get into that too much. i know you love it mm. you adore it and, and i've heard great things from everyone and i and for those who don't know it is a documentary about uh, see i didn't consider it a nature documentary at all obviously there's a lot of nature photography and a wonderful exploration of the undersea world which is like sort of baffling that we could just go underwater and visit this incredible mm. world it's not like in space like it's easily accessible it's just someone like me never really does that i kind of i kind of have a love hate relationship with getting into the ocean water but it is the cinematography is beautiful and everything, and and I love that it's not a nature documentary. It's it's closer as opposed to like Planet Earth. I found it more akin to like The Notebook, where it is about a relationship and it's about this one person reflecting on that relationship specifically. And that's a random comparison, but no, I think there's there's definitely parables there. I mean, I think the reason why this film. I really like it is the more you digest it, the more you realize it's not only is it a nature documentary but it's the amalgamation of a nature documentary and a filmmaker's history and mm. and and identity and um i'm forgetting the name of the documentarian um, oh well the guy's name's craig craig who, who uh, we follow yeah you know he's made a life of of doing nature documentaries and he is an avid filmmaker and and the personal inflection that he puts on this relationship mm. in this time of kind of healing and re finding his love for film it correlates to the this story we follow with you know because because you're right you really shouldn't kind of equate it specifically to a nature documentary because 
we are learning things about this specific species of octopus, yes. octopi, um, uh, and, you know, a couple of other animals, but it's not there to... Most nature documentaries are there to educate the viewer on aspects of the biological world. Yeah. And this is very much more his specific relationship with this one animal. Yes. Um, and how he found a healing process and reignited his love for film and in the ocean. Because mm-hmm. um, he's not trying to also make a political activist statement with this film at all. He's No, it's very purely just about like the behaviour of these creatures and, and their relationship and even the film aspect, like, I, I definitely think you're right. I like the aspect that we, we get a glimpse at him as a, as a filmmaker who's who's left this scene, who just can't deal with... He says at the start of the film, like, he, he couldn't enter another editing suite in his life. He was done. Um, so there is that part, but I think the film didn't really focus on his love for film mm. whatsoever. I, I think it was it's purely the, just his relationship with the It's animal. a perfect amalgamation of non-fiction and kind of dramatic cinema. Mm. Um, because... It's kind of doing a, kind of a reverse engineering of something like American Animals, which is a drama film that incorporates documentary aspects, whereas this is very mm. much a documentary that actually pushes a bit more drama, but not like reenactments or reconstructing no, the no narrative. It's, no, I, I documented all this stuff and now I'm discussing it from the dramatic context or the personalised context that this affected me. Yeah, um, and, and I think it definitely... It, it wouldn't have worked without Craig's, like, hyper-participatory involvement mm. or perspective because at first I was a little, not uncomfortable, but I was like, oh, okay, this feels a bit strange. It feels like he's just turning the camera on himself, which is weird because I love Forsama and that's all that film is, is someone just filming herself in this in this situation. But I did grow to like it and did realise, like, the film can't work without him and his... That sequence with the bull, the bull shark... Ah, uh, yeah, oh. yeah. Well, that's a perfect scene. That's a perfect example why this is not a nature documentary. Is he gets in the way of the nature, the process of nature, to to help the octopus, like feed the octopus that's injured. Um, but after the chase and stuff, oh, like, yeah. that's a perfect example. I was talking about the final, final scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. kind of that real climactic sort of like, and he, you know, that's a, a great. That's your drama where right he's there, you're following, right. and it's like. Yeah, it's a really... But you're right, yeah, there's definite... There, like, he does acknowledge that there's direct interference there. Yeah. Um, but it works. It totally works within the realms so of... So it's not a purist... It's not like, pretending ob- to be a It's not a, a purist observational nature documentary. Exactly. No, not at all. But I don't think it's trying to be either. Right. I think it's... No, well, yeah, it, it succeeds in what it's trying to do. That's why he's so important to the story. is because he is the story. Yeah. That's why he needs to be interviewed. That's why he needs to turn the camera on himself. But yeah, I generally like... Like I said, I, I didn't think it was... It didn't blow my mind. There were some great mm. moments in it. The first time that the octopus like latches onto his arm and he they both float up. Like That's a great moment. Um, maybe I am being harsh on it because I really have nothing negative to say about it. It's a great doco. So maybe I might up my score. We'll see. We'll see how I feel. Well, the other film I watched in terms of uh, keeping up with award season, I finally watched I Care A Lot. Which I didn't realize this was on Prime until I finally decided to start paying for Prime this week. I was like, "Oh crap! I care a lot." It's on Prime, so I watched that. Of course, with um, Rosamund Pike, who won the Golden Globe for her comedic performance in this film, I really dug it. I really liked this film. So it's quite a uniquely colorful and and funny take on the kind of 
organized crime that we don't tend to think of. And I'm going to talk a minute, a minute about a case study I want to do between this and The Godfather and how these films kind of take a similar thing and have different uh, approaches to it. But it's it essentially about this very organized crime that's focused around scamming the elderly. Mm-hmm. And Rosamund Pike is sort of part of this string of um, businesses, and this includes like the doctors that the elderly see, and not so much the courts, but they do manipulate the courts. And then, of course, the, the aged care home that they sort of trick old people into, you know, uh, being registered into. So it becomes this wide-spanning organization that's quite fun and colorful, and Rosamund Pike is sort of... She's taking, like, that scary, cunning side of her Gone Girl performance, but it's a bit funnier. There's a bit more of that the confidence of a successful businesswoman sort of pumped in there. She's really excellent in it. This is a great cast and actually has some of my favorite, like, back-and-forth dialogue sequences. Like, there are some excellent like exchanges and dialogue and the performances between two characters like it's it's really great i understand why some people don't like it because inherently taking something like that scamming elderly people and making it sort of a fun romp where you're following the people that are scamming them and they're not sympathetic at all they don't they never try to make them sympathetic Mm. oh look these people are assholes and we're gonna follow their story i can see people really not liking that and really finding that distasteful. And I completely understand it. I think it is intentional, though. And that's when I bring it back to The Godfather, where it's like, it's a different kind of organized crime. This is probably less bad because they're not murdering people. They're not dealing with drugs and guns and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But the characters in The Godfather are more likable. And you relate and sympathize with them more because the film tries to do that. And it, it sort of endures other uh, characteristics. We talked about Vito on our episode 100 discussion about I, I relate to him because even though he has these messed up moral codes about uh, violence and how to deal with people he also has a strong relationship to family mm-hmm. and the importance of family and I think those elements make him a bit more sympathetic and likable we sympathize with uh, Michael Corleone because he's sort of thrust into this life so we meet him before he becomes this person mm-hmm. but you know look at this film where it's like oh well they're just scamming all people that's not so bad but you almost hate these characters way more because they don't give you those sympathetic elements. Well, well, they're just trying to save them. No, it's like, no, they're not. They're just evil capitalists. Yeah. They just want money. That's all it is. So I, I thought those two were very interesting juxtapositions. But um, yeah. Oh, and Peter Dinklage is in it too. And he's great. Just just want to throw that in. I, I, I loved it. I really loved it. But um, yeah. Is there anything else you watched this week, Zeke? Uh, I've started watching a Netflix series... Um... It's, I don't really, I don't have too much to say on it. It literally is, um, what is it called? The Lost Pirate Kingdom. Um, it's <laughs> I don't just, think I've ever heard of it. It's kind of one of those like corny national, the best way to describe it, corny national geographic sort of like history lesson. One. You know what I'm thinking? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Like when you used to like national geographic used to be like the history of pirates and they've got one of those narrator voices where it's like, yes, and then this happened and then this happened and then they cut to like <laughs> the most colorful historian characters being like, like interviewees being like, and then they did this. They're, they're really into whatever the, the sector of history. I really like pirates. Like I really yes, do. You talked about it on the show. You want to make a pirate film. I'd love to make a pirate film. And then I saw Netflix has released a series on like the history of pirates. And it's like following a couple of people yeah. I've never heard of before. Oh, okay. um, in terms of Assassin's Creed, Black Flag is the best game. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. And my boy, Henry Avery from Uncharted 4. Shout out. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I just why, is he why? in it? 
Henry Avery? No. Okay. No. But I just really like, yeah, I really like that period of time because, and this actually, in terms of a series, it's, you know, it's like 35, 40 minute episodes. Yep. Um, and hey, it gives a bunch of actors that you've never heard of before a bit of work, so. Um, <laughs> it's always a plus. But Jobs. It's, honestly, it's really interesting. I find, I I love history stuff and I haven't watched enough of it. And yesterday yep. I got home after a very long day and I just saw it pop up and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to watch this. <laughs> I ended up watching three episodes. So it was like two hours worth of like content. And there you go. Like, That's a good thing. I just was enjoying it. I, it's one of those things, I would never grade it. I would never be like go watch this this is earth shattering but it's like hey you want a pirate history lesson with a couple of right cheesy kind of like reenactment stuff you know because that's what it is right. that's what i mean by national it, tick- it tickles your bone your funny bone yeah you know I'm sure they had a lot of fun making it yeah <laughs> it's some of the acting is is pretty average though <laughs> oh it's i remember there was one bit i actually laughed because i was like man you can tell, like, a lot, like, that's why you never, have you ever seen, I would love to know if there was ever, like, a, a nomin, like, even a Globe or a Critic Choice, like, an, like an, a real high-grade recognition, if we ever saw one of those actors on one of those National Geographic reenactments, sort of. Right, I see. I've seen, like, Soapies, but at least Soapies, there's, like, some performative, there actually can be some decent acting in a soap opera. Okay. Is um, the Soapies like a soap opera exclusive? Like, you know, like Margot Marga Robbie was. Yeah, like, yeah, and, soapy. In and like Home and Away? She was in Home and Away too. Yeah, and yes, Hemsworth yes. was too. And so it's like, yeah, but she was also like, Margot Robbie was also in like the American ones, like Bold and Beautiful and stuff like that. Yeah. I thought when you said Soapy, you were talking about an award show no. for soap opera. Okay, never mind. Like, I've seen <laughs> those actors obviously push into the high, but I've never, don't think I've ever seen, like, looked at one and been like, is that Tom Hardy acting as like a seventeenth century pirate in this very low budget? You I could tell. you'll probably find more of them like in random commercials. Like Aaron Paul has got some bangers in his early career. Yeah, see, Price yeah. is Right and yeah, random so, ass commercials. Price is Right, but yeah, so <laughs> Anyway, yeah, there's some good stuff in there. Yeah, uh, what else? I that's pretty. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I started watching Parks and Rec too. Oh, there you go. Have, what have you seen it before? Oh, oh, well, there you go. It's funny. It's really... See, speaking of that, it's really weird seeing Chris Pratt in, like... Right. In like, early. Rashida Jones is, like, you know, at least she was, you know, I just saw her in The Office for a bit. Yeah, so yeah. So it's, like... Well, that's... Uh, this, her office was the first thing, and, and then this was her big thing, yeah. I think, yeah, I think Rashida Jones, it's, like, you know... It's, like, on terms of career trajectories, it's, like, you know, obviously Chris Pratt is, you know, those MCU films. Yeah, he's, push he's you, in Marvel, exactly. Yeah, yeah. kind of push you to a new league. Um, I haven't got around to watching the first episode of, uh, was it Winter Soldier and Falcon? Or? Yeah, neither. I just haven't had time. I might watch it tonight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 45 minutes, whatever it is. Yeah, I heard it's like, it's, yeah, it's yeah. pretty stock. I, I don't know. It, they're, they're, they're two characters that I don't really have too much care for like i actually did have but, a legitimate his, his, would you have said that about wonder and vision no i actually like their characters okay okay um, but that might be a bit of elizabeth olsen bias <laughs> and even <laughs> yeah. paul bettany bias they're both too. great yeah um no i actually found but then it was also the the trailer concept like that we were doing this like 50s show oh yeah like. i was always into that I Always, think, yeah. whereas this just kind of looks more like a continuation a of kind of like Winter Soldier Part 2. Exactly. And, and, or like 
just sort of stock standard. It was, yeah. So yeah, which I'm might be good with two characters but... that I, I like: Andrew Mackey, Anthony Mackey. Sorry, yeah. um, I don't actually know. I can't remember what Winter Soldier. Oh, was. God, um, his name? oh, Bucky. Um, Bucky's gee, him especially. I always screw up his name. He's in um, Itonia and stuff as well. What's oh, the... he is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I always forget his damn name. Yeah. I'm not pretty, this is pretty ki- good. This is killing me. Because this isn't the first time I've forgotten Bucky's name. Um, Oh, my God. Like, I'm not saying that, yeah, like, not bad actors. I just, their characters aren't very interesting characters to me. Right. Like, Sebastian I've, Stan. Jesus Christ. Like, I really, I really think that? Winter Soldier's character's biggest arc was in that his titled film. Like, right. I really don't think these two have that much more character elements tattoo because here's my count i'm gonna we're not, we obviously we're going to hold off onto the when we do our black widow episode have full breakdowns of probably both yeah, shows you know, by yeah then. by the time it comes out you're right maybe even loki too who knows yeah um <laughs> but i think because of obviously the problems that you know when they brought scarlet witch in with the whole fox x-men parables problems yep. they had to obviously you know I, I had a debate with one of our one of our friends who's you know, always bringing up the, oh, the comic material, it's not the same. And I'm like, well, there's a little bit more to it than that. He's the Um, one guy in the world that can turn a Star Wars conversation into one where you're like looking around like, oh, there's girls here, man, just just stop it. (laughs) It's (laughs) a one guy that can do that. Um, And that's, uh, I know he's not going to listen to this, so it's fine. Um, (laughs) But he's, um, yeah, he's exactly that. And he's like, oh, I don't know why it took him so long to give her her original outfit. Like, her in the red jacket wasn't the same. And I'm like... Because they legally couldn't do it until, like, literally this year. Like, they couldn't bring all this stuff in because of exactly that It's also not her original outfit, like, at all. It's great. I love it. It's kind of like it, though. I mean, it's it's obviously meant to be more like it. I think it's... but her original... It's outfit, not the Halloween it, one she wears. It's, That's, it's definitely not that one, so... No, but the one she has at the end of... Yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. the one she has at the end of... It kind of feels like an amalgamation of No, that's what outfits, I mean. Yeah. It's like, it's not really... It's meant to be, quote-unquote. Yeah. But they've made it, like, not overly but sexualized. But I think those two... Yeah, well, that was about to say, I think the reason yeah. it's a bit dialed back is because of the sexualization of the actual OG yeah, outfit. Yeah, the OG outfit. Um, but... <laughs> And who who wants that? Um, it's like we we got it in the Halloween. There we go. We're happy. Yeah, cool. Um, <laughs> I think for me, it's like those two characters. Although they had a little bit of character exploration, they actually haven't had that much. Like their their sequences uh, and what and wonder. But they had backstories that were interesting enough. I mean, by the mm. time we got introduced to Scarlet Witch in the MCU scope, she's already grown up. You know, she kind of like. Oh, she's from Sokovia, and her parents are dead, and yeah, it was very. Yeah, we we know enough about her as the villain yeah. to understand her motivation, to mm-hmm. then see her turn into a hero, and then let that flesh out for a few films exactly. with Vision, who is introduced in the same film. Yeah, so I mean, it all that, makes perfect sense. We got to point out Age of Ultron. One of the reasons why that film, the only reason that film, in hindsight, you can look at it a little bit more positively, is because mm-hmm. of all the stuff that has come after it. It, it it's supported more yeah. by the fact of all the character depth that then explores and then you can go back and be like, oh, okay, well, I can see where, exactly. they, where they're going with this. However, that film isolated, it's it's bloated. It's a mess. I mean, yeah. there's four new characters introduced within, like, the first half of the film, really. 
At least three in the first half of the film. Well, it's not even the number so much. I mean, it's perfect when you look at... And I know you you don't agree with this entirely, but it's like you can look at Infinity War and the amount of characters there and say it's less of a bloated mess than Age of Ultron, which has infinitely less characters, but because of its direction, it feels more bloated. It feels Mm. like there's more useless stuff, quote-unquote, happening at the time. Of course, a lot of it's paid off, but... Yeah, I think that was more of a Josh Whedon issue. There's a lot of Josh Whedon yeah. issues in, yeah, in the well, world. Nowadays. But, <laughs> um, but I, I I just think that obviously that film, they had to build up a villain, so they spent a lot more time with Spade as you know, Ultron. But So when those two you know get their spin-off show, I'm like, oh, okay. And because of, yeah, more specifically because of the direction they're taking, it gives you the ability to come and look in and get invested. I mean... The end of the day, years and years ago, much as people might have forgotten about this, when they announced a Guardians of the Galaxy film... Oh every, my... Yeah, no every, one cared. No, no one, one cared. Everyone sticks their hands up and goes, oh, who are all of the... There's a raccoon, there's a tree man, there's some green chick. Like, I, was, I was the first one to be like, they're just going to do Avengers 2. Like, they're, they're trying to do that again and again and again. And obviously, it worked really well. It worked yeah, because the of the, the uniqueness of the direction. But it allowed... Because of how unique the direction they took with it was we were then open to learning more about these characters which yeah. you know if you w- w- rewatch that first film in the first like hour they are just jam-packing backstory after backstory into right. it they're like i gotta they, rewatch they hide it in the fact that they're like playing poppy 60s and 70s music they're like oh look um we're hi- <laughs> seriously watch it it's 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 still a good film I think the second yeah. one gets a lot of bad rap. Oh, I, I really don't like the second one. Some good scenes in the second one. No, there's also some really bad scenes. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, no, that's pretty much all I caught in the last... No, uh, that's fair moving enough. Moving away from my pirate thing. I just want to quickly... This was a real quote from my octopus teacher that I wrote down because I thought it was a good quote. Mm. Thank God she managed to get real deep into that crack. That's a line that Craig says at some point in the film. Just one of the... Nice. Just want people to know that. Nice. I want more pirate films. <laughs> I want more pirate films, not Caribbean film. You got to direct them yourself. Yeah. Who was Unless... the Who was the pirate S? The pirate S you wanted to do a film on, or like Anne Bonny? That I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. You talked about that. She'd one. be sick to do one yeah. on. I don't understand right. why that's or Mary Reed either or. Right. I don't know why no one's one. made that film. Like. Right. It's not just like Pirates of the Caribbean. Watch Master and Commander. That's a great film. Okay, like never Russell seen Crow. it. And Paul Bettany. Oh, there we oh, go. Whoa, go segue tying. Whoa, podcasting um, skills. No worries. I like um, it. Cool. Yeah. Okay, I'm ready to move into uh, career updates. If you've got. Any. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Let's see that first. Cool. So, um, yeah, I've got a couple. That I've been, like I said, I've been stressed this week. I'm going to hold on to a couple of these. Um, thank you, Zeke, for letting me borrow your gear yesterday. For, for a birthday shoot and it went really well um, I'm probably not going to talk about that too much because I, I don't think I'm going to be publishing that anywhere mm-hmm. it's a birthday shoot I'm sure the birthday girl is going to get the footage and then yeah. that's the end of that so <laughs> um, I also finally released the the Q&A panel this also includes these, like, the disconnected Q&A panel we did two years ago at the premiere is now on YouTube free so Check there it out. It's on Clicker Productions YouTube. And Zeke, you were our host. I was. So we're both in that panel video. Yes. So that's cool. Yeah, well, that, that that's on me. Before we move on to Oscars, is there anything you want to mention? Nah. Uh, I'm still doing my master's. <laughs> yeah. We need we need to replace career updates with story from my master classes. Story from my school. Or my uh, 
Masterclass. I mean, see, Masterclass makes it sound like you're doing an online Masterclass. Yes. <laughs> you need title. No, I, I, yeah. I, um, it's a lot of work. I'm really loving it, though. Mm. Like, seriously really loving it. Um, it's kind of fun. I've started using my own films. Um, okay. In, like, like classroom teaching. and Cradle and stuff? Well, this is the funny thing. Okay. A lot of my films I can't actually use until the older years because of the their, content their the... MA, all of them. I right. think the pretend... I was seriously thought about this because I, I also... In tying back to my Truffle Hunters screening, Lunar mm. X, Luna on SX throw out their f- posters after they've run yes. through the cinema. You actually have got a I got my furnace poster right there. In the room. Um, and I managed to score, just on the opening, a Nomadland poster. Very I just nice. framed it. And I'm very proud of that. Nomadland's an M. I thought it would be MA. Um, the, uh, yeah, there is... Because there's enough no, swearing. That's the there real... There is the nude scene, though. There is one nude shot. Honestly, nudity nudity in Australia is okay. It's sex that's the problem. Right. Like, but that's it. I found films that have, like, in the Australian Classification Bureau, they just have nudity, but there's no sexualization. It's totally fine. Yeah. Context means a lot. It's the sexualization. That's when it goes through the roof. No, it's violence in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, it's violence in Australia. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then... Well, there's no violence, violence or swearing and sw- in No Man's Yeah, Land. violence and swearing are the two things that bump our ratings up, but sexualization's not as bad. In America, it's the opposite. Violence is totally okay, but sexualization's the big no-no. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. It like, looked, when I, when I, we submitted like, Disconnected... You can blow someone's head off, and it's <laughs> PG-13. <laughs> I noticed that when we did the Disconnected um, certification with the ACB... They ticked off, and I'm pretty sure because they have their you know G P G M M A and R, and this is all public. You can go online and look this up right now. Yeah, um, they have like the little ticks. So obviously, the the rating on the front of the DVD box is the worst one. So if everything's like a G, like oh yeah, violence and, and swearing, but if there's <clears> one <throat> thing like themes, if themes is considered M A, then of course the whole film gets an M A yeah. on the front if that's the only thing. But I found I, I'm sure they can give none of them a tick if there's like no content whatsoever, no violence. They don't tick the G. They just don't. T- I think, which is why I found it funny. They ticked sex as a G rating. I'm just kidding. I was like, well, there's a there's a kiss. <laughs> Does that count as sex? No, I don't know. I mean, I so that was yeah. That's I was just thinking that like because <laughs> I like bringing because my ideology with conducting my media t- classes will be I would love to push my content onto them mm. sometimes simply just to showcase that the the attainability because I always used to hate when we were taught media in high school they would show you films like blockbuster films or they'd show you films that you as a 17 or 18 year old have no business or no chance of making anything remotely similar right. and grounded examples are always the best ones like when you show past years examples there's actually you know an attainability to that or if you show stuff yourself you know it's like but I was looking through like my content and I'm like I think I might be able to use like two or three of my films with kids <laughs> under the age of fifteen and then like A lot of swearing faces. Um, Home again, no. Um Cradle Cradle and there's, Pretender there's a, might sneak in because there, there's a couple of words in Cradle. Couple of Cradle ones. for the themes would be enough. You would you wouldn't use that with anyone fifteen or fifteen and older would be right, Cradle. Yeah, yeah. Pretender could be anyone because Pretender actually has nothing wrong yeah, with no, at all. Yeah, it's perfectly G. It's like 
probably PG with the themes, but it's not. Well, I'm not. But it's even not, the themes are overt, fired, yeah, None exactly. of it's overt, so it wouldn't give PG. So, yeah, my documentaries would be all right. I hope, well, Unsheltered wouldn't be, but the brain aneurysm one I did last year. Um, there's no swearing in Unsheltered, is there? Or a little bit? There is, yeah. Okay. Well, and there's some really heavy themes. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, I don't it's know. all it, like it's all real. Like at the end of the day, it's, it's it just I've right. been trying to use them more in it, but it's for work and stuff. So my industry stories are not as not as riveting as they once were. Right. Um, I honestly, I'm I'm not opposed to doing career updates slash school stories. <laughs> no, because sure like, if something comes up. No, there would generally be some. Maybe not every week, but I mean, we we don't have career updates every week either. No, it's fair. But I'll think about it. But it's, sorry. Mm, Okay, what were we saying? No, I was going to say, it's cool because like, you're right with Nomadland. Well, yeah, obviously it's a feature film, but it is something more achievable for a student in terms of the feasibility of what I, they're doing. I just, like, I find it also one problem that some teachers, um, we get we talk about it, it's like differentiation, and it's like some teachers get, because they know the material, mm. they get set in the cycle of reteaching it. And because they can teach it at their best ability. But for me with film, it's like you've got, if you can try and introduce stuff like contemporary examples, like I loved that one of my teachers made us watch district nine, which was a 20, 2009 film. And I, we were in high school in 2015 and we would have watched it in year 10. So 2013. Yeah. So only four years removed. We watched a bug's life. (laughs) year 10 and I, I and honestly it's like we watched the castle and i love the castle but the castle's a 1997 film so right. it's like i think the fact that pushing those films are from only three or four years prior or you know i like i doubt you'd be able to get parasite into anything outside of year 11 or year 12 um it's parasite it's Par- literally M-A. Uh, M-A. M-A. But that'd be a film you, if you can. <laughs> Don't ask why there's a copy of Parasite within eyesight of our office. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like you know that's MA, and the best part is I mean MA is year ten and above, so you can yeah, still, you, you still got three years of it. Send a form or oh, after fifteen you don't have to. Oh, that's a good point. because they're legally yeah, they're legally allowed to watch it now. If yeah. a parent like if a parent's preventing their child at fifteen to watch an MA fifteen film, well, at that point they don't have the power. You're right. No. They don't have the power. Otherwise, that, what's the point of a uh, program? Uh, yeah. But anyone under the so we I think in year 10, you still have to send a form out because some people aren't 15. Some people can yeah, be, some people can Yeah, if you can can't. check individually. But by year 11, everyone is definably 15, so yeah, there's no issue. Well, yeah, and, and that's the thing with Nomadland being M. That's a good chance, especially because it very may well become the best picture winner of the year, Zeke. Ooh. Speaking of which... Counter, counter uh, segue there. Thank nice. you. Um, we're working hard today on our segues. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, last Monday, the Oscar nominations were announced. I actually live-streamed my reactions to it, and I actually... Mm, tuned in for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. You were in there early, which I yes. like. You were right. There was no baby teeth love. We weren't surprised by that. Um, all Sarah right, so... watched baby teeth for the first time Ooh, during think? the week. She... I can, I can get her live comments. Oh, Just, perfect. Uh, give me a sec. I'm excited. All right. The funniest thing is, like, she, okay. Uh, I also watched this film, Baby Teeth, was dot, 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 weird. Oh, <laughs> Talk about, hang on. Sarah. Ease up. Talk about <laughs> non-conventional storyline. Uh, all like, I don't know what the word is, but 
weird you should watch it and tell me what you think and i went aussie <laughs> film baby teeth i was like if it's the aussie film from last year i adored that film actually won our best of 2020 for yes. our podcast. <laughs> exactly. um, so i'm going to we will have to chew our ear off tomorrow yes yeah yeah good yeah good point good point i forgot about this. it i'm gonna be there tomorrow with the whole clan but um yeah i will i'll, I'll help you with that don't mm. worry um, yeah, so what I'm going to do, and I know we've been doing a lot of awards I think weird's discussion. A fair, I think weird's a fair point. It's weird, but I, I think it's absolutely great yeah, but, in its weirdness. But I was going to say, weird is not a negative comment. No. It depends on the connotation you're putting on According it. According to Scott's, is, is weird. It yes. doesn't make it a bad... I would say Parasite, to an extent, Parasite's is weird. weird. Yeah, exactly. Um, Dogtooth. Very weird. Any, any of his films are weird. Because <laughs> <laughs> the next one I was going to say was Sacred Deer. Oh, there you from, go. from Yamphamos. Um, all right, I know we've been talking about award season a lot. I'm going to say let's let's just run through these nominations, give our thoughts, and then hopefully we could, uh, we don't have to give any updates for the next few weeks. We can go a few weeks, relax, and then when the Oscars are fun, the winners come through, we can have one final discussion for the year on award season. How does that sound, Zeke? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good, <laughs> groovy. I thought you can say groovy. All right, so for best animated feature, we have Onward, Over the Mo- Over the Moon. A Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, Soul, and Wolfwalkers. Pretty standard. Shaun the Sheep is surprised, but no, Zeke, you're laughing. I've heard great things about all of these Shaun the Sheep films. I've heard they're excellent. Well, they're done by the Wallace and Gromit people, so I probably right. should give them time. Um, I wish they would do more Wallace and Gromit films. Like, yeah, they're the kind of mar- left out of those. Like, the know? marketability I know is clearly in Shaun the Sheep, but it's like, like for kids, for younger people, and I'm really right. glad that kids are at least being subjugated to that form of animation, not just digital animation, like right. taking the time with the armorettes and stuff like that. But I just miss Wallace and Gromit. I miss, I miss them too. They're great Watch characters. a close shave. Watch the wrong trousers. Those are excellent. There was, I saw a video the other day of them, an orchestra playing oh, live look. to the wrong trousers. Nice. I was like, that was awesome. I always loved them, the Wabbit. That was a great one. Oh. The large rabbit dropping. <laughs> <laughs> Not even Wensley down. Yeah, so I've seen three out of four of these. I'm going over the moons on Netflix, so I need to watch that. Yeah, Sean the ship. I actually don't know how to watch that. I'll do some research. Um, I think Soul's the obvious winner. I would like to see Wolfwalkers win, but that's not going to happen. Yeah, it's going to be Soul. Yeah, it's it's pretty. I don't really understand. You, Pixar shouldn't be able to have two in that category. Oh, I mean, they they made the effort to put two films out in the yeah. same year. I uh-huh. think that's fair enough. It's like saying Netflix can only get one film a year. That's a bit silly. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I, Netflix is distributed. I don't know, whatever. I guess they fund their own films. I don't know. I don't know, Z. What do I know? I'm just a guy. <laughs> Best documentary feature. We have Collective, Crip Camp, The Mole Agent, My Octopus Teacher, and Time. Now, I think My Octopus Teacher's got it. Okay. Well, I think we've only seen... We've both only seen that one. I've heard good things about Time. So with that in mind, I really don't know what's to say Octopus Teacher is a great film you've got accessibility on its side too I would be yes through Netflix um, so but obviously the Oscars don't necessarily go for the pop most popular so um, no but I think it's a fair um, I think it's a fair assumption that the majority of the Academy is going to watch my Octopus Teacher and that might be all it needs is the majority to just watch the film yep so yeah I, you might be right I'm going to go with time because I've heard the buzz don't know how to watch it, but, you know, we'll see. Um, best visual effects, you have Love and Monsters, The Midnight Sky, Mulan, The One and Only Ivan, and Tenet. It's a pretty weak category. I think Tenet, probably. 
Because mm. it didn't get nominated in many other places. Midnight Sky got good visual effects. It's fine. <laughs> I'm just glad I didn't get score. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I need I'm... to watch it. You should. It's not good. Just, <laughs> you've just completely destroyed it. Like, systematically since you've watched systematically it. Systematically destroyed it. I, I just it. have no inkling of watching it. Like, But is that my fault? Were you really going to watch it before I said anything? Well, potentially. It's George Clooney. Oh, that, that might be a problem. <laughs> Best film editing, we have The Father, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, which really surprised me, Sound of Metal, and Trial of Chicago 7. Um, I was shocked that Promising Young Woman got the spot over Mank. Which, hey, I'll take it. Hell yeah. Um, what do you think's deserving? We haven't seen The Father yet, and that's renowned for its editing. But Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, Trial of Chicago 7. I could see him going to either Trial or Sound of Metal. I need to watch Sound of Metal too. Yeah. I'm tying back to Riz Ahmed. But, um, yeah, no, I, I've i done pretty well with that category. I am missing The Father and Sound of Metal. Right. Two I miss. Those are the only two best pictures we've missed um, as well. There you go. So, well, you've seen Sound Well, I've of seen Metal. Sound of Metal, but in terms of films we've reviewed on the show. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, I'm probably going to go with, um, I'm just trying to think from editing point of view, I don't see it going to Nomadland or even Promising Young Woman. So no. I might honestly give it to something like The Father or okay. Sound of Metal. Be one of those two. Because I don't see them winning some of those bigger categories. Right. And like you just said, The Father's renowned for its editing. Whereas like I don't have a problem with the editing in, in Promising Young Woman or Nomadland, but I don't They're see not it winners. picking it up. Like, I don't, right. like, it wasn't, like, I wasn't ever blown away by the editing right. side of it um in fact if you you know in promising young woman one of our i think our things that we both agreed on that we weren't the biggest fan of a thing like font inconsistencies and stuff like that which would probably get tied in with the editing maybe i mean it's probably more direction because it's not like the editor forgot to yeah, like true. change the font but i don't think the editing flo- like, it flowed well i guess um edit but i've never thought it was a standout it's like i said when we reviewed promising young woman that was the second time i watched it i was specifically looking out for the edit and the structure because mm. i remember thinking it was kind of messy the first time and i i liked it more the second time i was like yeah with all the pieces in there they kind of edited it in the only way you could yeah um so i probably but i agree i don't think it's worthy of the win i'm gonna go with sound of metal yeah, I think it's either Trial of Chicago 7 is the obvious one because it's flashy oh, yeah. or Sound of Completely Metal. Completely forgot about Trial. Maybe Trial. Maybe I'll back Trial, actually. Well, that's the f- I think it's between those two. I think Sound of Metal is like the one that people appreciate in my he's been winning for his he's been winning for his script, hasn't he? Did for Sound of Metal? No, for Trial. Oh, uh, he won winning. the Globe, yeah. But he didn't win Critics. Critics went to Promising Young Woman. Oh, it's going to be tight. Um, <laughs> probably honestly. Yeah, I'll go sound and metal for this one. Yeah, cool. I like it. Bold. I'm I'm going to say the same because mm. I think the narrative is is sound and metal is going to get a push from now to the winners. So I'm I'm going to go with you too there. Um, did you say best visual effect? Were you just going to go with Tenet as well on that one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Best original song: "Fight for You" from Judas. Hear my voice from Trial of Chicago Seven. Huskovic from Eurovision. Uh, Low C or Scene from The Life Ahead. And Speak Now from Eurovision. One Night in Miami. God. I almost watched Eurovision the other day. I wanted to watch it too, but... <laughs> I mean, it's a musical. It makes sense that one song goes that's in the, there. Is that the... No, is that the one with Will Ferrell? Yes. 
And uh, racial... <laughs> I like how you're like, so, yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> what was the other one? Sorry, I started laughing. Lucy <laughs> um, uh, from The Life Ahead, which won the Globe, and One Night in Miami Speak Now, which I think won the critics. Life Ahead was the film... Neither of us have seen it. That's not the Sia film, though. That's music. No, no. no. Um, so what's the life ahead about? I don't. It's a it's a foreign film. Okay, I haven't seen it. Um, that's all I know about but it. You said one <laughs> critic and uh... I think Speak Now from Miami is like in the lead. I mean, that's like the clear front runner from One Night in Miami. Yeah, is that the final song? Uh, it plays during the credits. It's not the song he sings at okay. the end, which we're going to talk about very soon. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with Speak Now. It seems like the safe choice. Yeah, go on. I'll do the same. Cool. Best original score: The Five Bloods, Mank, Minari, News of the World, and Soul. I think this one's pretty obvious. Based, Soul. Yeah, Soul. It's one all the other ones. I'm glad Minari's in here. That's awesome. I loved Minari's score. It's very, yeah. very important. The, yeah, the, like the bass in it. Yeah, fair enough. So you're going for Soul as well? Yeah, I go with Soul. Cool. Best sound. And I didn't know this until after the fact. They actually merged the mixing and the editing sound category, so it's now just best sound. Which I'm actually... I love that they did that. It was always a pain in the ass that it was two mm-hmm. different things. No one knew the difference. Best sound for Greyhound, Mank, News of the World, Soul, and Sound of Metal. Um, it's probably going to go to Soul. Just the fact that Soul's even nominated in this category. But again, I think Sound of Metal would be an awesome one to take. The film is all about sound. Mm. <laughs> you would think. So I'm going to go with Soul. Safe choice. I'm taking a safe choice. But... Yeah, you. What, what do you lean towards? See, it's it's tough. You haven't seen Sound of Metal yet, so yeah, that makes it tough. I'm feeling like it might pick up a couple of these technical categories sort okay. of awards, and you know what? To have a bit of differentiation. Um, I'll yeah, go with. Because Soul's going to win two, at least two other categories. Yeah, it's going to win like animation and score. I reckon. Yeah. So let's go Sound of Metal. Cool. Awesome. I'm going to stick with Soul just to be safe. Best makeup and hairstyling, you have Emma, Hillbilly Elegy, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Mank, and Pinocchio, which I totally predicted on Gold Derby that Pinocchio was going to do well. Got two nominations. Uh, I'm going to go for Ma Rainey's Black That's Bottom. That's the Italian one. version, right? Yeah, it's yeah. the one that came out. Uh, it screened literally one day last year, and it was sold out, so I missed it. Um, I still want to see it. Yeah, I'm going to go for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in this one. I just don't think the other films have the snuff for it. Yeah, I'll go with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, similar situation with best costume design. You have Emma, Mank, Marini's Black Bottom, Mulan, and Pinocchio. Uh, I'm going to go with Mank in this one just because I'm replicating how the glow, well, not the, the sorry, the critics. Is it the Guillermo del Toro film? No, I think he's doing one in the future. Okay. It Jesus. is. Let me find out. I've got it here. I got it. Jesus, there's a lot of. Uh, for Mattia Garone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I've got it here. Based on the 1883 book, The Adventures of Pinocchio. Um, Alright, for production design, they have... Uh, oh, no, this is not the surprising one. Yeah, production... Uh, is there a surprising... Yeah, yeah, there is. So, production design, there's The Father, Marini's Black Bottom, Mank, News of the World, and Tenet. Which surprised me that Tenet's in that mm. category. That's a bit weird. Um, it's between The Father and Marini's Black Bottom. Just depends what they feel. For PD? Uh, yes. Um... I go with Ma Rainey. Yeah, I, I hope so. Because I've, I've got them in for makeup and hairstyling. So hopefully they win at least two of those three categories. I think Manx going to get costume because, again, that's how they, the critics played it. Uh, for best cinematography, you have Judas, Mank, News of the World, No Man Land, Trial of Chicago 7. 
I mean, No Man Land's got it in the bag. Mm. If Mank lost the Critics' Choice Award, it's not going to get it here. Yeah. So, um, Mank's not going to do very well, actually, I don't think. All right, best International Film. I think this one's obvious. Another Round, Better Days, Collective, The Man Who Sold His Skin, and Kwai Vadis Adi. Wada. I think uh, it's time for another round. I think it's the guy who was also nominated for Best Director <laughs> is probably going to win uh, in this round. So, well done, uh, it's, just re- it's literally just reinforcing why I'm going to defend that film against The Hunt. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, best Adapted Screenplay. I have a problem with this first one, but Borat, subsequent movie film, The Father... Mo- uh, Nomadland, One Night in Miami, and The White Tiger. This is a weird-ass category. That White Tiger, I remember seeing a trailer for that. I was so kind of curious by it. It looks strange. It looks very Which, strange. again, doesn't mean it's bad. No. But, uh, um, yeah. that, I can see why you'd be upset with the Borat one. That annoys me. It's and not I, gonna, but it's not going to win. I mean, it's in here. No, it's going to be... You say One Night, and then... Yes, One Night's in here. Uh, Ma Rainey didn't get any screenplay noms. In one, original one night is definitely. Wait, is Judas Judasness? Judas is in original. Original, yeah. Okay, so this is definitely going to pick up. Okay, um, so adapted. you're saying One Night Miami for adapted, Judas yeah. for original? No, because if Promising Young Woman's in. Yep. So in original, there's Judas, Minari, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, Trial Chicago Seven. Yeah. That's a much better lineup than adapted. Oh, see, because do I go with my heart or my head with that one? Because it's like, yeah. the, the practicum in me is just going to go, ah, oh, they're going to give us Soderbergh again, aren't they? It's between Trial and Promising Young. It is. Yeah. We love Judas, but I don't think the screenplay is it's They might give it to, they might give it to um, Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman for this category over, yeah. So yes. I'm going to go yeah. with One Night in Miami for the adapted. Right. And the original, ooh. yeah, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to okay. go with that. Emerald Fennell. Come on, let's do it. Let's yeah, go. I'm joining your hype chain. I'm going to go for Emerald Fennell's sc- screenplay as well. For Adapted, I'm actually going to go with Nomadland because it won the critics there. And I'm going to think that Nomadland's just going to sweep and they're just going to... I don't think it deserves Adapted screenplay over a couple of these other films. So I I would like to see One Night Miami nominated. Or, um, sorry, win. If it's going to pick up a win, I think it's going to be something like this. Okay. I'm seeing with Nomadland because I think it's going to sweep. Okay. Um, cool. All right, so Best Supporting Actress, we have uh, Maria Bakalova, Glenn Close, Olivia Colman, Amanda Seyfried, and Yon Yeo-jun, the grandmother from Minari. I feel like this might actually be a Minari pickup, potentially. I think it's between her and uh, Bakalova. And I think Bakalova's the bloody head, uh, the lead runner. I can see, because I, I can't see Stephen Yoon picking it up in... Um, in actor. In actor. Yeah. Um, I'm glad he's nominated. Oh, that's awesome. I'm I really that. glad for that. That was my one five out of five category on Gold Derby. It was the only category I got 100% correct. Okay. I But I don't see him... So the the boy didn't get nominated? No. Um, he uh, His spot went to... Well, the supporting actor is interesting, to say okay. the least. We're going to get into that. Um, I actually think she has a chance for this one. Because this might be kind mm. of... Because she wasn't in the critics category... Uh, I think she might have been. I oh, okay, she, but she wasn't in the, the critics. In the critics, I think she was. She wasn't in the Globes. Right. Because um, we picked Glenn Close for the Globes. Um, uh, yeah, I think you're right. We did. And then that went to... Who the hell? Who did it go to? It wasn't Rosamund Pike. It was not it was... Billie Holiday. Oh, Jodie Foster. Yeah. Who's not even here. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I think I'm going to back her for this one. Okay. I think I... this might be Minari's only pickup for the night. So only pick? Oh, this you know and... What? Yeah. This and maybe... Because it's nominated for a lot, but it's not like a, the clear front runner in any of those um, categories. I actually think this is going to be its only pickup for the night. I hope you're right. I'm going to go a buckle over because I, I feel like that could happen. But I also, I would be very happy if... Because like you said, Minari if you're, if you're pushing for a Nomad Sleep, that means it's going to knock out Minari in a lot of yes. its categories. Yes, exactly. So this is the one where I'm like, they're definitely going to... Because I think it's, it deserves to win something. Yes. And this is a really good rash. Because her, she's very good in that second half of that film. Mm. Obviously carrying, like, the, you know, she's acting with a stroke. Yeah, um, all that stuff, yeah. So the, the, from a performative aspect, after seeing that compared to Hillbilly Elegy, I like Glenn Close's performance. It's the best part of that film, but I do think, yeah. I yeah, think and I just think, like, Glenn Close, Olivia Colman, Man, Cypher, they haven't won anything yet yeah. at any of these award shows. Maybe maybe the SAGs were having something interesting to say, but... So I think you're right. I think it's either her or, or Maria Bakalova. Um, best supporting. This was... A, I mean, I'm pretty happy with all of these, but there is some weirdness in it. So we've got Sasha Baron Cohen for Trial of Chicago 7, Daniel Coulier, who I'm, he's going to win, yeah. obviously. Um, Leslie Odom Jr. for One Night in Miami. We're going to talk about that very soon. Paul Racy for Sound of Metal, which, yes, well done. And Lakeith Stanfield for Judas and the Black Messiah. Even Lakeith Stanfield didn't realize he was up for Best Supporting Actor. <laughs> he basically made a tweet that he had to delete after being like, hey, I don't get it either, but you know what? Screw it, LaMeo. <laughs> Why do you have to delete that? I don't know, because I... Like, what is he saying so wrong there? Like, I don't know. He doesn't expect to get nominated and he got nominated? Like... No, because he was campaigning for Best Actor. But he's in the supporting category. Yeah, so it's like, who's the main person? It's Jesse Clemens. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much wrong with that. <laughs> Martin Sheen for best actor. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's really, that's it's really cool, weird. Yeah. It's cool, it's... yeah, easily. Yep. Best... Did, he, did he get nominated for Get Out? Uh, maybe a Globe. Okay. Not, I don't think, this is his first Oscar nom, I think. Uh, for Best Actress, this is probably the most predictable category, even though I voted against Vanessa Kirby, but whatever. Viola Davis, Andrea Day, Vanessa Kirby, Frances McDormand, Kerry Mulligan. It was kind of the five we've been talking about for a long time. Um, I think Kerry Mulligan's... She, she got the critics nom. Mm-hmm. If she wins the SAG in a couple of weeks, I think she's a shoe in for this, this award. Yeah, I, I think it comes back to... Yeah, a bit of, like, I think what that film has to say, or, I mean, Viola Davis is Viola Davis. Yeah. This is, I think I had the exact same rhetoric when we did the Globes talk. Yeah. This is important, I think, for Kerry Mulligan to get this sort of recognition for this mm. type of film. And Viola Davis has already won an Oscar. And, no, and well, this is her fourth nomination, I think. So, it, yeah. She's a very accomplished actor, actress who, you know, is going to continue to be an accomplished actress. And I think, yeah, I think for Ma Rainey, I think it's going to be Chadwick Boseman is going to be there. Yeah. He's... Sort of the the one that gets the recognition for that film. Mm. And it's going to go through, which means for Mulligan and for now, I think this and Screenplay are the two big uh, right. uh, thumbs up for them. Yeah. Where's Bo Burnham's supporting actor? <laughs> I saw someone comment that. Seriously, he's good in it. 
Yeah, yeah but what, compared to these other ones, Daniel Coulier and Paul Racy and all that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, I, yeah, I just I kind of almost forgot Bo Burnham was in it too. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they, that's, that's how almost... much Mulligan steals the show in that film. Yeah, that's almost part of it. All right, he, honestly, Alison Brie, I think, makes more of an impact in that film than Bo Burnham yeah. does. It's a great ensemble, through yeah. and through. Excellent ensemble. Best actor, we have Riz Ahmed for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Marines Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins for The Father, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Stephen Yun for Minari. God, Oldman being in that? Like, I'm sorry. He's the one you could have taken out. You could have put... You could have put someone else in there. You could have put that kid from Minari in there. Well, he, he got a Best Supporting Nom for the critics, Alan Kim. I guess he is kind of more supporting. Yeah. I mean, we argue that he's sort of like... The, the eyepiece into the story, but I understand... Kind of like an Aquafina the Aquafina-esque character, I think. Yeah, in a sense, but I think Aquafina is still considered the main character or, or in the award season. Again, you got to admit, like, this is... It's all to do with literal screen time, like how many seconds and minutes are on screen, rules, yeah. and then what do they campaign for? Like, that's the whole thing with Lakeith Stanfield, is the Academy just decided to put him in supporting... Yeah. Which is weird because he yeah, clearly I, is best actor. He's definitely the one that I would elevate to that main category of right. exchange. Oh, in exchange for Gary Oldman. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Because I've... When we, we did Mank, what, 98 or 99. something? 99. Um, 99. 99. And after we finished talking about that film, it kind of just went <laughs> off into the ether. And, like, I can remember... Like, and we did, we did... Black Bottom, Marini's Black Bottom, not long after that and stuff. Like, we've done... Really, in the last 15 or 16 weeks, we've had films that have had everlasting, like, effects. Mm. And we've watched so much new contemporary stuff that the fact that even after 10 or 12 weeks of new films, I can still remember iconic scenes from all of them, says the strength of... Right. And a lot of them are being brought up in this conversation, so... As opposed to Mank, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair enough. The one thing I remember really liking in Mank was, was the reveal of the, you know, he has more bullets or he gave he gave him the bullets and she's oh he has more bullets something like that and he shoots himself yeah. the guy. I liked the I the, the, the the final climactic scene between Wells and and Oldman, but I think that the character, oh, yeah. the guy who played Wells was the reason why I liked that scene, not Oldman. Tom Burke. Tom Burke. Yeah. 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 He's a, he's he was great in it. Yeah, I think I think Mank just became that film of this season that people. I mean, some people didn't like it. We both liked it enough. Yeah. But it's fun to dislike Mank in the in this comparison, this yeah. story. Because it's clearly not better than any of these other films. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. So I think Chadwick Boseman's obviously going to win that one. For Best Director, we have Lee Isaac Chun for Minari, Emerald Fennell for Promising Young Woman, David Fincher for Mank, Thomas Vinterberg for Another Round, and Chloe Zhao for No Man Land. It's Chloe Zhao's to lose. I think she's a guarantee. But First time in whole- history. What? In Oscar history, two females. No, and I caught it. I caught it back you in did. January. I put it on Facebook. Um, I'm going to share it when uh, Chloe Zhao actually wins because that was part of my comment, is that two women and, and Chloe Zhao's going to win it. Um, I'm glad I didn't say at least two women. I really wanted to put three. I'm glad I didn't because that obviously didn't happen. But Thomas Vinterberg, he was the first name to come up on the on the screen. I think he had So that. it was like, what? It the direction insane. in that film is... is one of its biggest strengths for mm-hmm. sure but then it's like he's a brilliant I really think that I could have easily have put someone like Mads Mikkelsen or any of that like that quartet up right. up for a supporting role or something like that but it, the supporting category this year is quite stacked so it is stacked yeah um, 
Yeah, it's ours to lose. Yeah, for sure. And it's a good category. Again, I think you could have taken David Fincher out for anyone. Mm-hmm. Regina King, that's what a lot of people were saying should be in the third woman in this category. Shaka King. Or Shaka, well, Shaka King's a guy, actually, I, oh, yeah, real, I realized recently. Yeah. I thought, I thought I don't know why, but I thought they were both women directors. Both the Kings. Both the Kings, yeah. Um, all right, yeah, Chloe Zhao's to lose, and I think it's going to be the same deal here. Best Picture, eight. I called it. I told you there's only going to be eight nominations. The Father, Judas, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, Trial of Chicago 7. Everyone's first response is, where's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and where's One Night in Miami? Which, yeah, but, th- but, those were the eighth and the ninth and tenth slots, really. Yeah, but if there's only eight slots, I mean, something's gonna miss no, out. Well, no, well, that's the thing is like there can be ten slots. I think the rule is obviously it's by votes, like who's voting for the most that gets in. It's the top mm-hmm. ten, but I think each film needs to make a certain amount of votes. Right. So even though Marini's Black Bottom could have been the ninth vote, it needs at least four hundred votes on its own to even be considered in this category. So it just didn't make the cut from that bar, which is annoying. I guess, but then it also comes back to, yeah, they've been nominated in other categories too. And yeah. um, if that's how the system works, that's how the system works. It doesn't change. Yeah. I mean, I think next year it's actually is going to be a locked 10. Like they have to have 10, which I like that. Yeah. But, um, oh, well, I mean, you know, I, I was surprised by Marini being missing. Mm-hmm. But um, especially Ma Rainey with uh, obviously One Night in Miami. That feels like those feel like the only two that are like really missing. But um, I like I like this category a lot. There's, I mean, it's a better category than <laughs> Best Picture was a couple of years ago. Mm. Bohemian Rhapsody and Black Panther. And it's like why any of these films in here? Um, yeah, No Man Land's to lose. I think absolutely. It's, yeah. Well, speaking about one of those films that. <laughs> has been snubbed from the Best Picture category. It is time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, we're watching One Night in Miami. Listen, listen. Brothers and sisters, listen, listen, listen. Miami, the champs! Where we'll never find a way to where we're going all alone. The goal is for us to really be free. We want a world where we're safe to be ourselves. To think like we want. Without having to answer to anybody forward. We have to be there for each other. You brothers could move mountains without lifting a finger. In the aftermath of Cassius Clay's defeat to Sonny Liston in 1964, the boxer meets with Malcolm X, Sam Cooke, and Jim Brown to change the course of history in the segregated South. Zeke, you've talked a lot about in the last year these quartet performances. Mm, it feels like it feels like they're just making them for you now. Yeah, <laughs> not being proven wrong here. No, no. Um, you get proven right every week. It feels like <laughs> it really does. To be honest, um, I think what it comes back to why why this sort of formula works is it allows a little bit more exploration into certain 
cultural, political, social context the film is trying to hash out. Mm. Um, and I really haven't been proven proven wrong in the last year. It's it's definitely been quite a an interesting um, thing that just keeps getting reinforced. I mean, if we looked at the last fifty two films we did for the second second year of our show, the second season, mm. or have you? It'd be interesting to see how many of them were quartet performances. Um, Off the top of my head, Baby Teeth, Shirley. Obviously, this film. We did uh, one recently. I'm thinking of Ending Things. Yes. Yes, perfect. Um, it's There's a bunch. There is a bunch. And I find it intriguing because it, it allows, yeah, it allows this sort of um, dichotomy breakdown of of characters. Um, maybe it's to maximise. It could even be something as, as, as trying to maximise, like, categories because you get two supportings <laughs> and you get two, two leads. Um, but, uh, yeah, this, this film definitely doesn't disprove that formula. I mean, Ma Rainey had more than four people, so maybe it's just a, uh, it's just a funny occurrence, but yeah, this film, obviously we did Shaka King last week and this week we're doing Regina King. King. They are not related. Um, they just have a relatively common surname. Um, (laughs) but yeah, no, this film is being met with. Probably not as like not as much critical acclaim as as Judas, but it's right. definitely got love behind it and positive reflection. Um, Jake, what was your immediate take from this film? Yeah, so I saw it a couple of days. I finally I, I finally started paying for my Prime subscription. I just stopped doing <gasps> the email thing. <laughs> I figured you know what I can actually afford it now. I've been doing well as of late with jobs and stuff, so. This was the first thing I... Actually, no, I think I watched I Care A Lot first. But, you know, this was the most recent film I've seen on Prime. Um, I did like it a lot. I totally saw what you would... We were talking about it in private a little bit. Not too much. You didn't want to spoil the film for me, of course. But I do like, you know, the quartet of performances and, and how, obviously, they're taking these people that... You know, these legends, these icons, these, I guess, historical figures. I mean, one of them is still alive, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jim Brown, of course. But... I, I thought the idea was great, especially as a stage play. This is a stage play adaptation, and yep. I want to talk to you about that in a moment specifically. Um, but yeah, just the stuff they cover and, and the conversations they have, I think that's all great. I think the film is perfectly fine as a film in terms of the way it's edited, the way it's shot. It's perfectly fine. I think it's more the exploration of you know uh, black rights in politics culture and, and what makes a black man successful, especially in the 60s and how these four personalities clash and their ideolo- ideologies clash. I think that exploration and their performances are excellent. Mm-hmm. It's really fun to watch. It's really interesting. Um, I'm also not too upset I didn't get the Best Picture nom. It does kind of feel like the temp spot out of those films that we just mentioned. And I think part of that is because, again, it is based on a stage play and the playness of it in terms of small, limited locations and big monologues, I don't think it hurt the film, but I think it does sort of hold the film back from something like Judas, which is allowed to be this bigger, wider, scoped film. But maybe it's an unfair comparison. No, I think um, in hindsight, I kind of agree with you. Okay. Um, sort of Because you watched this first, didn't you? I did. I, yeah. I watched this prior to Judas. Um, and the longer, uh, the further removed I am from Judas, the more positive I think about 
Okay. That film. Um, and I think you're right. I, I think this film does have problems. Uh, the reason why I would, I would argue that out of the two, out of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and One Night in Miami, right. why I probably would say Ma Rainey as a film is stronger is because it demonstrates okay. more filmic uh, qualities. Whereas this film sometimes does struggle to feel like a film. And I, like when you're talking mm. about those long monologues, I had a similar problem with uh, The Normal Heart, which... So I watched this film and I watched The Normal Heart with, with Sarah, and which she really liked both of them, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing with, with, with Ma... And we also watched Ma Rainey together, so we actually watched all three of them, yeah. um, which is funny. But... I I think why I liked my Rainey's more is because it did demonstrate multiple times more filmic qualities mm. um, and more uh, through yeah, through lines. And I think that does come out particularly in Bozeman and, and Davis's performances. Whereas sometimes this quartet do some of them at least do feel a little bit more stage play like in their right. delivery and the way that they're acting. It's less screen and more stage play acting. Um, I don't think it, it ha- happens as much as it does in something like Normal Heart. Normal Heart, it happens a lot more, and it's quite. Fr- and the cast is so much bigger, so the monologues really start to stack up on the top of each right. other. Whereas the concentration of this this quartet actually helps a lot. Um, and they do allow occasionally them to exit the apartment compound. Yeah, they go upstairs. They go into the phone booth, or they go to a down the road to a yeah. convenience store. And yes, um, so there's allowed to have a little bit more differentiation in there, so it does help. Um, whereas Ma Rainey's is still confined pretty much to essentially two rooms for the majority of the film. Yeah, there's, the, really there's the of... opening scene, and then you're right. There's basically just the two rooms. Sometimes they're out on the street, but but they yeah. they break that up and add more filmic qualities in when because they have the elements of music in there, right? Yeah, and I think that that helps it a lot. Um, well, my thing with Ma Rainey, I agree with you completely. It feels more filmic than uh, Miami does, and I think more of the way the camera's used. Yeah, where they were cutting to these super close ups inside the recording machine with the with the the vinyl they're printing onto. There's a bit of a montage after the opening prologue scene where they sort of cut to, you know, these people working in these sweatshops and it's meant to compare, like, you know, what a lot of black communities had to do in order to make a living versus these more successful musicians that are also part of that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did that just by edits and cuts and visuals without needing to do dialogue on those particular yeah. instances. Miami doesn't really have that moment ever. They have, like, a little flashbacks they, and stuff, but... Yeah, they have one or two moments of real cinematic weight and gravitas, mm. but they honestly... The most demonstration of utilising the camera for that more that more filmic impression and effect comes literally in the, the epilogue scene, kind of the... Okay. I would say the uh, final, yeah, yeah. the the Sam Cooke performance montage. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Yeah, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit more. That's one of the greatest demons, and in the opening, in the prologue, when we inter- we're introduced to the the four characters in there, mm. they use it a little bit there. Um, but when as soon as they come into that point the where they're all meeting room. in the hotel room, yeah, that's when it starts to become more stage play like. Whereas almost because of the confines of Ma Rainey keeping it to that 
that one room and stuff, they basically had those moments where they were like, we need to add more uh, cinematic effects, otherwise this is just going to feel like we were recording a high-budget stage play, you know? Yeah. It's Um, interesting because you're right, Ma Rainey probably has less locations if you sat down and counted it, but it still feels more filmic than than Miami does. Well, it's a sequence when they're singing the song. Right. Like the actual, you know, the song, and they're and the moving around, around and it cuts around. Yeah, they could have point. just left the camera there and had them performing, um, but they don't. And even in One Night Miami, when Cook does that performance at the end of the film, yep. they're only doing a slow punch in. They're not doing too much else, and they don't have no. to do too much. They else. don't because they're already montaging to other characters. characters so exactly. I think that's completely fine. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. So. But yeah. Um. Yeah, I, I, I think one of the biggest strengths of this film is its script. I think it's a great script. I think mm-hmm. for Regina King's first go-around as a director, I think it's great what she's gotten out of the performances of four actors that I didn't know too much about. Yeah, um, no, so, you know, Leslie Odom Jr. is obviously, you know, around the block and making um, making rounds, but you've got Kingsley Ben-Adir. Um, let me zoom in on my Aldous Hodge here. and Eli... Uh, Gore. Gore? Gore? I don't know if you like Al Gore. Al Gore, but with Which, an extra E. <laughs> for the most part, I've been in kind of just... Um, well, I mean, uh, like Kingsley Ben-Adir. They, they feel like more, you know, character actors than, say, like Corlier or Lakeith Stanfield, who... Mm. They, it feels like we've seen them in plenty of films by the time we yeah. watch Judas. Here, it feels like... They more, maybe these people are more selective in what they work on. That's well, kind of the from what I can I see, get. they're actually putting a lot of those. If they are in stuff, they're in high budget films where they're probably playing stuff that's like one of them's in King Arthur and stuff. Like, oh, okay, I've never seen like the the Guy Ritchie one, and they're probably playing. Honestly, they're probably playing a lot of stereotype characters right. very which which will come into play um, with Jim Brown's story. Yeah, yeah so they're playing um, characters caricature characters um obviously being of all i'm assuming of african-american descent mm. um yeah they've obviously obviously been pigeonholed and probably make most of their living from the paychecks from those high budget films so this is probably right. one of the f- first times where they've really got a chance to really kind of get a bit more screen time, get a bit more of an acting showcase. And what I love, and this might seem a little artificial, but what I love is when you look at the poster for One Night in Miami, it's not their names that are like in the big text. They're they're at the very top in little text, but the big text is Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke. Those are the names that are like in big, bold letters to grab your attention because they're playing these characters. It's not about them. That's the important, yeah, that's the important um, thing there because... Obviously, I think the people that are marketing this film and even the people that created it, people like Regina King and stuff like that, she obviously likes what she sees with these four actors, but she knows the fact that the marketability doesn't come from their their own acting names. It's coming from the right. fact from who they're playing, these icons of, you know, cultural icons, community icons, um, yeah. race icons even. And... Um, so yeah, I think that you you hit the nail on the head there by having the the smaller name to the to the larger name with the, right, with the yeah. marketing and the poster. Um, yeah, no, I think it's probably time to move a bit more into the nitty gritty of the uh, the film. Yeah, well, I found it's funny. I was thinking this. This is a perfect. You talk about how when you and Sarah watch films, and Sarah's always like constantly anxious to find out like all the context behind it and this and that. Yeah, and she likes stuff she up. likes being a fact checker. 
Right, and I think this film definitely aids from that. I think all of their roles mm. in their you know communities and you know Jim Brown, oh, well, he's an athlete, he's this and that, and obviously Sam Cooke is a musician. Like it, the film makes those very evident what what their roles are. But the thing it doesn't talk about specifically are their ages, and with the with one exception, like how long these people have to live from the time of this film. So. Um, yeah, we're getting nitty-gritty spoilers. Of course, a lot of the spoilers we're going to be talking about is mostly due to the real-life outcomes of these people. Uh, so I, I checked this. Sam is 33 years old. Malcolm is 38. Jim is 28. And uh, Cal, uh, Cassius sorry, is 22. Or Muhammad Ali. Yes. So you kind of have this big he age does, gap. Muhammad Ali does express his age in the film. That's true. That's a good one. He does say 22. Good point. But what I like is that as part of the dichotomy of these four characters and, and their ideological sort of situations and differences, mm-hmm. that the age does come into what I feel like in terms of Malcolm is the oldest, uh, Cassius is the youngest. And I think Sam that plays Cook, into probably their... the closest to Malcolm X's age. Um, yeah, well, Sam, yeah, exactly. And Jim Brown's kind of a, a middle, middle man, which, to be fair in the film, he probably plays the most neutral... Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the neutral party. ...territory... Yeah, exactly, and I think I think that's interesting. But what's interesting is again, the end of the filming does specify that um, Malcolm X dies within a year where the events of this film takes place. What it doesn't mention is that Sam Cooke also dies within a year. He mm-hmm. is killed within a year of this taking place. Yeah, he's shot in a hotel lobby. Yeah, and my thinking is the reason the film doesn't highlight this is because that's not part of his arc. I think Malcolm X part of his arc is being this paranoid guy wanting to get his history written, wanting to have his legacy carried on through the Muslim faith and having um, having Cassius join that faith. So I think it makes sense that in terms of his arc, the film points out that he does die a year from mm-hmm. now. With Sam, I guess it makes sense not because I feel his arc is about, as a musician, coming to terms with writing music that is more important. Well, and they have just, more cultural commentary, yeah. Yeah, and not appeasing... To the dollar, to the Which white Which kind man. of does actually correlate to the sort of messaging in, in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Sort yes. of um, yeah. With the whole, uh, particularly Bozeman's character, mm. um, who's writing songs for the, for the white man. And this uh, film explores that theme a little bit more with obviously the way that they, when they take that moment to listen to um, Bob Dylan. Yes. Bob Dylan's blowing in the wind. And, no, it's and... I always think of the Simpsons joke where Homer's just like, seven. And Lisa's like, it's a rhetorical question, Dad. He's like, rhetorical, you say? Eight. <laughs> but no, it was a perfect allegory mm-hmm. to the thing. I mean, you're right. This film explores that idea Maybe a bit more? Yeah. Less visually, it's all in dialogue. This film definitely rewards you for exploring the characters online after or before. And and even exploring, like, when they play that song. Oh, well, why did Bob Dylan write Blowing in the Wind? And Mm -hmm. it's actually a song that was derived from a song sung when um, African Americans were enslaved. And it was sort of his social and political stance. And then there's the whole commentary of, well, a white guy is talking about... Uh, social injustices and political activism. Why can't I? Right. Uh, which is uh, the the questions posed to Sam Cooke's character. Um, why he can't write? Because uh, he's a gosh darn capitalist, Zeke. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. I wrote that down because that's the ideology we learned from him. Because yeah, he is. His music is speaking more to the white man, and it's all about the dollar. And at the beginning of him, he's bragging. He he has a bad performance, and he yells at the guy in his you know the back room, mm. the green room, whatever. 
and he makes the comment of like, oh, have you ever have a song made half a million or a quarter of a million dollars? He says something along those lines. So it's like from the beginning of the film, it's about the dollar. It's about him being a mm. successful back black man by having money. doesn't matter what he did to get that money. It's true. But then he also does go on to when having uh, one of those debates in the room with Malcolm Epps to talk about how his uh, way of going about it is another way of getting back, a very similar sort of thing mm. to the way Bozeman operates um, with, oh, well, you appease them, but, you know, it's you're only playing their game to benefit you and your community because that's how... And it comes back to it, the problem is this... Obviously, this, this film takes place right in the midst of a, of the social justice movement. Right. Of uh, February 64. Yep. Like, which would cultivate towards, you know, 66, 67. Whereas, you know, we take Judas last week, that was in 71. So, some... I actually... It's funny because I actually found it. I think it actually takes place in sixty nine. Oh, I think it because goes I think over Fr- the course of a couple. Because I years. think Fred Hampton dies in sixty nine. Okay. That's what I read, and that's why I got confused. I feel like they said seventies. Maybe it's intriguing. several years in the future. Yeah, just technically, just after that, the the central part of that movement had ended, and and right. we started to shift more into the commentary on Vietnam and stuff where. Trial of Chicago Seven. It's been yeah, a very, it's a, yeah. very co- concentrated period of time. Yeah, um, in the last six months, for the, right. for the last year <laughs> of film. But um, yeah, so I think obviously, so the ideology of how to deal with sort of the social injustices faced by African American people and their civil rights movement that occurred in the mid nineteen sixties, everyone had different methodologies for it. You have a very young Muhammad Ali, who thinks you know simply, quite simply that. He is the most athletic man on the planet, mm-hmm. and by proving he's the most athletic man on the planet, he is you know showing the white man what you know what for. And, and right. someone like Jim Brown, who has you know made his success of being a very successful NFL player, mostly supporting a white America's sport, mm. is actually choosing to go away and pursue acting because it's what he wants to do. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's what I love about that discussion here. Is it with... um? Oh, who is it that he tells initially about it? It's not... um. He tells Cook's character. It's Cook? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Yeah, what I love about the conversation is you're right. You get the sense that it's what he wants to do. It's easy on his legs. It's probably more money because he's bragging about you know the $37,000, which... Justice for inflation is a hell of a lot of money, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, a, it's like. But th- you're right. That's, that's his way of kind of saying stuff you to the system because he's not going to put his body on the line for people that won't let him even walk into the house. Yeah, but the counter to that that is made is well, you're dropping this, you know, this successful athlete that you, the character that you have in order to play the black man who dies in every movie. Like that's the line. And I thought that was interesting because we kind of made a joke about it earlier in this very episode. It's like, is it worth, you know, the money and the time and the fun of being in the movies and doing what you want to do if that's the representation mm. of, of the black movies is, you're going to get? I think this is where one of the fundamental theses of this film is. Mm. It's the debate of personal, political, and social context to all, like, and considering all of them and to address this social justice issue. Because Malcolm X he's looking at it always big picture and has no accountability for the small picture, for the personal. He sees everyone as instruments and tools and gets called out on it. Right. Because he's actually, because he's so fixated on fixing or addressing or um, radicalizing the issue, 
he's actually forgetting the persons behind this movement, the personal... The individuals. Like, the individual, you know. Yeah, because it feels like all three he, other characters are in it for themselves to a lesser extent, or to a bigger extent, mm, in terms where, of their own financial growth, their own growth as a but celebrity. Then he, but Yeah, but then he also... He alienates himself, and he alienates himself from the people that quite admire him because mm. he's gotten to this point where... He just sees it as a movement. Everyone's just a tool to serve the movement. Whereas, right. So he's actually becoming quite inhumane in his struggle for humanity. Well, so. I think it's more... He's becoming more selfish in his fight to, I guess, destroy selfism, in a, selfishness in a way. Yeah. Because it's almost being selfish in trying to force other people to join a movement that they may or may not be interested in joining. Mm. And or, that, or preying on, as more what you can tell from Cook's perspective, mm. preying on the youngness of, you know, a, like a very immature person. 22-year-old. Muhammad yeah. Ali or Cassius Clay, because, you know, Cause his, it's his ideology yeah. is, I'm bigger, I'm better, I'm the best. Right. And so the impressionableness of a wiser, well-spoken, as they say, 50s commentator <laughs> voice, you know, and... Um, I find that really interesting. Yeah, and and I like the juxtaposition, especially between uh, um, Cassius's like overconfidence, and it makes sense. He just he just became the the champion, you know, of the world. Yeah, yeah. But um, comparing that to the 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 paranoia that Malcolm X has, and we know as an audience that it is justified. We know what's going to happen mm-hmm. within a year, even the ending when he his house is burnt and everything. Like we understand the paranoia is just even though people make fun of him for it. But I liked that just juxtaposition of their personalities where it's like he's trying to find this... You're right, this young, impressionable person. Mm -hmm. They're all right about each other and it highlights the complexities of the movement. And I I think Sam Cooke's is my favourite, the music angle of it. And it's like, well, well, you know, look at this song. It was successful, Mm. made by a white person, but it also said something. You know, it says something important. And it's like, why can't Sam Cooke do Mm. that? doesn't have to be about the dollar and and i think ultimately i i know jim brown's still alive it's jim brown yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah jim brown i know he's still alive what what was his sort of end cap he's in he goes to the movies yeah. right he retires and, and he retires yeah. from nfl okay yeah so he just he kind of fulfills mm. the fantasy because it, it, it sort of goes both ways where sam cook does decide i'm gonna make songs with this deeper meaning mm. behind them about standing up and I mean the song that speak now not the song that he sings in front of the camera it plays during the credits and it's going to win best song at the Oscars just saying but I like that some of the characters have that turnaround and they're like you know what I'm going to change my attitude from the beginning but then you have Jim Brown who is like no I this change that I wanted to make since the beginning of the film I'm still going to make that change yeah so I kind of like that they each have their own outcomes if you will. Oh, that's fair. Another character, let's call him a character, the location, the hotel itself. Yes. Now, I was quite, I don't want to say proud of myself, but it was like, okay, good job film, you did it without explicitly saying it, is immediately you see the Hampton House, or you see like the pool and everything, and you see like, oh, it, it, only African Americans are actually here. And what I realized quickly is, ah, oh, this is one of those Green Book hotels. Now, I don't think the film ever explicitly says mm. this is a Green Book hotel, but I, I was glad that the film sort of translated that, and if you know people have seen Green Book. How do we feel about Green Book? We liked it when we saw it, but then it won Best Picture, and we kind of stopped liking it. 
I think we just I think we like but we liked it for different things like we actually we want to add personal context we had the cinema to ourselves so we really got to have a lot of fun with it Um, I think we just kind of walk away with it being one of those sort of safe fine films yeah that has you know uh, we've seen better performances from Viggo Mortensen right um, Mahershala Mahershala yeah um, both and we've, of them. we've seen better performances both and it kind of feels like I think there's a lot of controversy with that film too because it suffered one of those things where it's based off a true story but that it was so loose it was very loose to the point where right. people openly expressed like there is like next to no similarity between the story it's based off and what right, actually yeah. transpired um, and, I, and I know people have issues have been like oh look the white man comes in and drives him around and they become friends I don't know I think people didn't there were it seemed, it, it, it seemed, well, all the themes were very overt, I think. Yes. I think that's the... The monologue in the rain scene. I get all those, like, complaints, I do. Yeah. But, um, all yeah, right. It was the director of Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, yeah, it, um, I'm glad that I sort of picked up on that. There is an article about the Hampton House, because my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, yep. my understanding is that all four of these people did stay at this hotel on this night. They did intersect. They didn't have this full-on sit-down and conversation together. No. But my understanding is it is true that they all were at the Hampton Hotel, or the Hampton House, sorry, on the same night. And the only fictional aspect of this story is that they actually all sat down mm. and talked to each other. I kind of like that, and it kind of... The thing I noticed is the film opens with based on a true story. I think it was based on a true story. And it's like, okay, I think that's kind of true. But once the 17-minute intros, like the four characters introduced, and it comes up with the title, One Night Miami, I think that's sort of the the click of, oh, now this is when the real, based on the truth, this is when it Mm -hmm. starts deviating, it turns into the play, which I thought was interesting. But I wanted to give a shout-out to the Hampton House, and there's an article on architecturaldigest.com about the uh, the importance of the Hampton House and and its role in this film, and just I wanted to shout that out for that was really good. I did like the location a lot. Cool. All right. Well, I'm trying yep. to see. We we dwelled a lot into the the ideologies and yeah how these people sort of um, got in the way. I want to first off, I want to give a shout out to Christian uh, Magby as Jamal, the uh, sort of the fanboy guard at the door. What do you think of him? Fine. I actually completely <laughs> forgot who was in it. The guy who goes up and gets everyone's signatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, I thought this was interesting because. I thought it was a little like, oh, okay, it's a bit strange having this character in here and mm-hmm. he's a big fanboy. And it make, makes sense. I was wondering if it was trying to be like the audience window into this timeline because obviously present day, this was almost 60 years ago that this takes place, we view these people as icons and as legends um, <clears throat> of their culture. But mm-hmm. I guess it was a window to see like the fanboy of the time, like to their contemporary setting, to see p- people who were big fans of them and we see it like when they go to the convenience store there's a couple of people like, oh my god you know go. No, I was about to say take a selfie That <laughs> that's not what they did <laughs> but yeah I just wanted to give a shout out to him because I thought his role was interesting that they mm. they put it in there um, a discussion I wrote discussion semicolon and we kind of touched on this already we talked about this and Mara Rainey's Black Bottom being two stage adaptations and how a director has to work with those limitations of those small locations, big dialogue-heavy scripts. My question is, we were just talking about the Academy. These were the two films that P. 
people argued were the snubbed choices for best picture do you think there's a relation to that that because those two films happen to be stage adaptations that that's part of the reason why they didn't get in that best picture slot Mm, I don't no I I can't imagine that be the reason right um maybe not intentionally I just noticed that no, cause similarity. No, because they got, they got other categories. I think it yeah. just comes back to, I think, like you said, it's just how the system works. Yeah, um, just the voting. And and maybe, I think between, you know, you got to think between this, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, and Judas and the Black Messiah, they're all in the same period of time. And right. Trial of Chicago 7. All yes. in a very, within, within 10 years. Within 10 years, yes. Of one another. That's four out of 10 Right, trial get no trial or get, ten slots, yeah, ten slots, potential slots, yeah. And if it's only eight, then it's four out of eight slots. Yeah, that's exactly. half your films. Um, and a lot of them, although they don't have explicitly the same themes, they have correlated themes. Yeah, there, there's definitely connections. You can, you can watch them back to back to back and get a lot out of each other's viewings. Yeah, I mean, they're films that explore cinema of the other. They're a film. They're they're you know, race associated films they're culturally associated films all at the same period they are very counter all four of them are very counter the government systems that were instilled at the time right of their whatever they were they're very anti-authoritarian in that sense yep um, and they all provide social commentary so mm-hmm. I think that you know between Judas to have two out of those four get into the top eight the, the, yeah. the eight films selected that's still a quarter of the field. Yeah, yeah. Um, a quarter of the field. So, so terminology. four would be forty percent <laughs> of the field in a ten right. category. That's huge. And I think, I think, if, like you said, if you watched all four four films back to back to back, I don't think Try would have been in the top two. My top two of those right, four. Right. Yeah. But Judas would have been, and probably Ma Rainey would have been the two I would have picked. Well, yeah. What I mean when I say watch them back to back to back to back is because they're so similar in terms of the yeah. time periods they take place in. Like, I mean, um, Judas has a very direct reference to something that happens in Trial. Mm. And I kind of joked, if you think they did that, they put that little scene in there literally because Trial of Chicago 7 just came out. Probably not. It still works without having seen the Trial yeah. film. But yeah, it's like there's little nods and, and this and that between the films because the topic and the subject matter and the time period are so closely entwined. Um, that's what I mean when you watch them yeah. back to back to back. There's, there's a lot more to take out of it from each I other. I think I would have just... Pre- I mean, at the end of the day, Trial was focusing on the Vietnam conflict, whereas mm. obviously that's absolutely not what Judas is doing. Ma Rainey is actually focusing on the racism post the 20s. Right. So into the you know, great... Post-Civil War sort of... Well, post-World War One, yeah. Post-World War One. Yeah, that's true as well. Great yeah. Depression... Roaring Twenties, so it's a little bit different in terms of, but in terms of genre and themes and meanings and trying to convey, they are yeah. similar. Yeah, well, um, the whole idea of, of owning your music as a black man comes up in this film and, and Ma Rainey. Exactly. So, so, overlapping themes for sure. And, and I think it's a shame that, like you said, that it should be good from now on, they just have a locked in, you have to have ten, just the top ten voted right. out of the Academy are the ones. Yeah, I think from next year... It, it's going to be a lot um, There shouldn't be a flexible number because the fact is we're going to get 10 films across the world that we like. Across the world. So yeah. That's fair. 
And yeah, I can't Why talk because it's like if I were in charge of Best Picture, I would have Kajillionaire and Baby Teeth and yeah, like those kinds of films would have gone in as well. So that might have made even less room for these kinds of films, which are important to to try and get these awards. And, and I think I think the black representation or just the the minority representation in general, because there was a lot of Asian nominees as well uh, in these films, is great. It's great that the Academy's finally mm-hmm. doing this. But and I shouldn't have said black man earlier because Ma Rainey. Is certainly not a black man, <laughs> and her music is very important. So I um, just want to clarify that. My dramas, cool. Well, would you like to move into a highlight scene. Yeah, let's do it. What's would, your highlight scene? I would like? have to say it's probably. I do really like um, the. Um, I actually like the introduction. The Jim, uh, Jim, Jim Brown's Jim Brown's introduction scene where. Mm, when he's talking to the guy. Because um, that swerve comes out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, there was... My family were, like, in the room when we were, I was watching on the TV, and there was some a big audible gasp. <laughs> that it made me audibly comment. gasp. I really yeah. like that scene, and I like... I like... I have to... I see why Leslie Odom Jr. is the nominated one, because mm. of his monologue, his um, African-American music monologue. Yep. Where he talks about the employment and the percentiles and how, what he gives back to the community in the room when he's directing to Malcolm X because it's an educated, yeah. it's well thought out, and it actually explains his ideologies and theologies and why he thinks he has the answer to the question right. and why he's justified in thinking that. Um, and I think that that's what showcases sort of a, a perfect balance. So yeah, yeah, I and I definitely agree with that, and and of course the musical aspect that he brings to the film with those performances. So it makes sense. He was sort of like the one they picked to be in the awards mm-hmm. uh, race. I mean, I loved Malcolm X in this film. What about as you? Well, uh, my highlight scene. Yeah, I li- I like the Sam Cooke flashback when he sort of wins over the crowd. I thought that was not, uh, maybe a little jarringly edited into the f- scene, it's a good but scene, it's good scene on its own for sure. And and again, you just mentioned that his fight with Malcolm X. That particular fight, I really liked. I ended up thinking that my highlight scene might actually be at the very beginning with Sam Cooke's introduction, the first time he goes on stage and sings. And what I liked about it, rewatching it a second time, just that scene, was the subtlety of, um, like his you know Duncan performance, if you will. Uh, the subtlety of him being distracted while trying to do that performance, and they did it through the sound editing of all of the 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 mic stand in the background drops, and you kind of hear it, and then. He keeps getting distracted by the people whispering in the crowd and this and that. And it's like, you can argue based on how loud it is, whether he was audibly hearing that or if just the audience needs to mm. know this. I, as a scene, I thought of it as a scene where it's his, we're in his head and the sound mix and the way that the music's getting chomped by these whisperings, that that's what he's hearing. Hearing, yeah. And I like to think that that's how they were directing that scene and then and i think it's my highlight scene because i thought that was a very clever use of sound mix and introducing that character no dramas well one night in miami is currently available on amazon prime yeah prime video i love prime's um or amazon's opening logo but well that's that's netflix, that's netflix <laughs> yeah i don't know what prime sound no is. they have like the roll out red carpet with the lighting Theater. It's like a whole thing. Oh, there you go. It's crazy. Speaking of streaming platforms, what's <laughs> new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week, Jake? Bit of a lighter week this week, Zeke. Bad Trip comes to Netflix, which is hidden cameras capture two friends pulling hilarious and inventive pranks on the unsuspecting public. Okay. So if you're into those kind of films, no. I, I find some bad, uh, well, badass, ba- badass, 
earth-shattering um, shake there. Yeah, what was that? That was somersault. Talking about oh, gates that was opening. Your, that was your, I thought that was my mic. No, that was the phone. That was your phone vibrating. Holy crap! Let's get the that hell out of here. <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, I like the jackass. That's what I was thinking of. Your phone distracted music. I like Sorry. jackass sometimes, but um, it is what it is. Uh, coming to stand this week is Guns Akimbo. So this is the Daniel Radcliffe Samara Reaving film. If you're into that, I thoroughly enjoyed it for what it is. And coming new to cinemas, I didn't realize this was out this week. Zeke. Godzilla vs Kong. He's playing at Hoyts and sees the fearsome monsters square off in an epic battle for the ages. Are you excited, Zeke, to see who wins between Godzilla and Kong? King Kong? Sure. Sure. Apparently there is like a definitive winner in the film. I've read that. I'm going to say it's Kong. I'm going to say it's Kong too. Because I think he's the biggest cinematic... Uh, of humanized Kong. I guess so. <laughs> Can you humanize Godzilla? Not really. Not I mean, without making him seem God, racist. Godzilla's in the film, he just kind of walks away. <laughs> he, like, does, he kills the kaiju and then he's just like, yeah, I'm out. I'll be back. I'll, I'll, but I'll humans still back. try and kill him. Like, I think yeah, because humans I think grudges. at the end of the day, look, the thing that we evolved from is going to be the thing that wins. Let's be real. Fair, <laughs> Fair uh, enough. Fair uh, enough. I like that answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. I went from the cinematic standpoint. Of it. He's more important to cinema, Zeke. Um, all right, the last v- uh, Vermeer. The last Vermeer sees a soldier, investigator, renowned Dutch artist who is accused of conspiring with the Nazis. And finally, the painter and the thief sees Czech artist Barbara uh, Kasilkova develops an unlikely friendship with the man who stole two of her paintings. Bit of a painting back to back there, Zeke. No ways. Which is interesting. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show. No. Um, we're actually moving into a director's corner, and we're going to be it talking... It feels like forever since we've done a director's corner, doesn't it? Vintenberg? Yeah, I guess Vintenberg because it was... It feels a... like six months ago we did yeah, that. it does, actually. <laughs> um, we're actually going to move into a director that, well, he uh, kind of won oh, yeah. Best Picture last year and Best Director. Which you look um, at It's time for uh, the director of corner, but I'll let Jake... That was a shocking segue. I'm really... We were doing so well. Zeke. We were doing so well <laughs> all day. Um, Jake, who's the director and what we're watching? So we're talking, of course, about Bon Joon Ho, Oscar winner for his direction, and the film of the week next week is Memories of Murder. <laughs> Shut up, Kaya, pay. 
big city detective helps two inept small town cops investigate a serial killer. That's all I'm going to say about that film, Zeke. Groovy. I've never seen this film. Yeah, no. So, uh, for those who don't know, very recently, it's a JB Hi-Fi exclusive. They just released the Bon Joon-ho collection on Blu-ray. So, Memories of Murder, uh, Mother, Barking Dogs Never Bite, some of his short films. They're all on Blu-ray for the first time ever. It also comes with The Host and Parasite, of course. So, I bought myself a copy. We're both looking at it right now, that beautiful pink box set. And uh, Yes. Yes, yeah, so Zeke, you've never seen Memories of Murder. I haven't seen a lot of his films. I've literally only seen Parasite. There you go. I so. might have to borrow you some more. Um, yeah, most of them are available, I think, or at least a couple of them are. I think Mother was out on DVD, so I, and maybe Memories of Murder. I of might have to hot swap, but Memories of Murder is obviously the key one to get done this week. Yep, of course. Um, and we obviously did Parasite in episode 50, 54. Yeah, 57? Something like that. Um, yeah, well, I think... It's in the 50s, I know that. I think The Host and Mother are both on SBS On Demand. Which is the are. free service. I think you could probably get both of those there. I've never seen Barking Dogs Never Bite, so I'm definitely going to watch that in the next week. I'm very excited. And what's even more exciting, Zeke, we're having our first official guest back on in nearly a full year. Hopefully. Hopefully. He's pretty optimistic. Carter's subject to change. Sorry? I was just doing one of those like disclaimers, like Carter's subject to change. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little asterisk. Yes. In there? Yeah, for sure. No, well, no I'm very excited to have our returning guest and uh, to talk about Bon Joon Ho. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Memories of Murder.